This past week has really been a week of ups and downs at our house. On the upside of things, we saw Emma do something that we had never seen her do before. Uh, when she was having therapy on Friday morning, uh, she was laying on the therapy table. We had her legs bent, and she was able to maintain control of her legs as well as engage them in pushing out and in. So we saw movement in both legs, which is a real praise and something we hadn't seen that clearly before. So that was a real up moment, and we praise God for that. The downside is this. Um, Emma does have pneumonia again. And right now we are treating her at home and would ask for your prayers that she would be able to get over this quickly, that her lungs would clear up. Up and down. Highs and lows. But I would imagine many of you have the same story. It may not be as dramatic as what's going on at my house, but the truth is all of us in life experience the ups and downs. Life is not lived at a straight horizontal line, is it? There are times where you will experience the heights of praise and joy and times where we experience the darkness of depression. Times where we know God is with us and we experience the confidence of that relationship and other times where we wonder, Lord, where are you? It's the story of life in a fallen world, isn't it? That very existence is reflected in the speeches and the writings of Abraham Lincoln. When Lincoln took office in his first inaugural address on March 4th, he, he spoke resolute and with a vision and a, a, a hope that was a buoy to his soul. He said these words, the mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the course of the Union. It's a vision of hope. The tie that binds us is greater than what divides us, divides us essentially. But a little over a year later, on June 28, 1862, a year into the war, his rhetoric was a little more tempered. He said, I expect to maintain this contest until successful or till I die or am conquered. Not quite the idea of the swells of, of hope and the ties that bind the Union. And then things got worse. After the devastating defeat at Manassas in Virginia, Lincoln wrote these words. Well, we are whipped again, and I am afraid. What shall we do? The bottom is out of the tub. The bottom is out of the tub. The next, next months got even darker. Lincoln wrote, if there is a worse place than hell, I am in it. Then there became hope. Union victories began to turn the tide of the war. And his rhetoric again began to speak of hope. In March 1865, in the words that have been etched into the memory of America, he said these words in his second inaugural address, With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation wounds. And then, just two weeks before he was assassinated, he said, Thank God I have lived to see this. It seems to me that I have been dreaming a horrid dream for four years, and now the nightmare is gone. Do you see that arc? Hope. Struggle. Lord, where are you? This is, this is horrible. And then hope again. Our journey's no different, is it? 
That is life in this fallen world. And so as we struggle with that truth, that there are ups and downs, we can empathize with Israel. Because there were questions that had to go through their mind when the words of Amos finally bore their horrible fruit. When the walls were destroyed, when the economy collapsed, when their military was defeated and their enemies triumphant, and when the food disappeared, there had to be questions. Lord, will the broken walls ever be mended? Lord, can we rise from the consequences of our sins? Is reconciliation even possible? Lord, will we ever know joy again? If you hadn't picked up on it by now, the book of Amos. Well, it's not a book that has a lot of sunshine in it. It's not one of those comfort books. No one says, I'm going to look to Amos chapter 2 for comfort. And even though the book is one that speaks of God's holiness and justice, it ends on a triumphant note of hope. As the book concludes in a very dark way, wondering, Lord, your sword is raised against your people and is going to bring about your wrath, there is hope. Because in these verses, in chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, God gives this litany of unconditional promises that even though the nation of Israel has fallen, God is not through with his people. Even though the ten tribes addressed as northern Israel in this book will never again reconstitute with boundaries defining them as a nation, God says, you will be and always will be defined by my covenant with you. All is not lost. God makes these promises. You can see them. I will rebuild. I will repair. I will raise up. And then you get this glorious picture in verses 13 through 15 of overflowing abundance. Well, the promises that God has made in this passage are fulfilled in Jesus and the church. Now, I say that based upon three truths that I want to show you right now. God is true to his word, and this has been fulfilled in Jesus and the church. The first reason that I hold to this is what is said in the book of Acts in chapter 15. The early church is now struggling with this issue of, okay, there's a Jewishness to the faith, to Christianity. But now these non-Jews, these Gentiles are being saved. The Gentiles were people that good Jewish boys you just didn't associate with. And now the church is struggling with these ethnic and religious divides. How do we become one? And if you could see this well enough to read it, this is what it would say. The church is debating this in Jerusalem. James, the half-brother of Jesus, stands up and he says, Simeon, now that's Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So God's moving outside of Judaism. It's not just Jews that are converting to Christianity. Gentiles are coming in. And James says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. That's what we just read in Amos, isn't it? So James is saying that as these Gentiles 
are coming into the faith, you are witnessing what Amos predicted at the end of his book. James sees that the tent of David and all the nations coming together in the church is the fulfillment of God's promise to rebuild, replant, and to bless. There's another reason I believe this is fulfilled in Jesus. Upon the screen you'll see 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The second reason I believe that this is fulfilled in Jesus is that all the promises of God coalesce in Jesus Christ. Now as Paul is writing this letter, the church at Corinth is wondering where Paul has been because he had told them, I'm coming to you. And he didn't show up and so they're wondering, Paul, what happened to your word? Are you a man of your word? Paul answers, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you. Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. He's basically saying, okay, my plans may not have worked out to get to you, but we know that the plans of God in Jesus never fail. Why? Because, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Does God fall short of his promises? No. How are his promises fulfilled? In Jesus Christ. They are yes in him. That is why it is through him, through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. They are yes in him. He brings them to be. And that's why he says as the church we say amen. The word amen literally means so be it. If you were to get moved in spirit and I say something that resonates with you and you say, Amen, brother. See, I even threw in a brother there. I went a step further. Amen. That's saying, so be it. I agree with that. That's true. So Paul is saying that the church, we say amen to God in Jesus. So be it. Because the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. Third reason I believe this promise and all the promises are fulfilled in Christ is something Jesus said in John 8. Up on the screen, John 8, 56. He's talking with the Pharisees and he's been having this repartee with them. And he says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The question is, why would Abraham rejoice to see the day of Jesus? Now we could say generally because Jesus is salvation. And that would be true. But I think it's more specific than that. Remember, Abraham is given a promise. Abraham, you don't have any children yet. But one day, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the beach. How's that going to be fulfilled? In Jesus. That's why Abraham looked to that day to rejoice. Because he knew that in Jesus, his promises, the promises of God would come to fruition. And it has. That the church is looked at as descendants of Abraham that are more numerous than the stars. And scattered, more uh, numerous than the scattered sand on the beach. Abraham looked forward to it and was glad. So in other words, if Abraham, who was given this promise by God, looks to Jesus as the fulfillment... Why then would all the other promises of God disregard Jesus? They wouldn't. Jesus is the centerpiece of God's plan. He is the pinnacle of God's purpose. He is the focal point of God's creation because in Him all the promises of God are yes. The promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus either at His first coming or at His second coming. And sometimes it's a combination of both. It's where he inaugurates something in his first and then it's fulfilled in his second. And that is the day that he's referring to here. The day of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 begins with in that day. 
Now there's a change here. Up to this point, the day has been a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day of darkness. But now, in that day, it becomes a day of restoration. It is that happy day when God will set all things right. It is that happy day when the reign of God is recognized by all of creation. And it is that happy day when all of creation bows down and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, according to verses 11 and 12, the people of God... That's me, that's you, that is the church, that is those people of faith throughout all of history will be whole and complete. He says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David. Notice he doesn't say house of David. The house of David's fallen on hard times. It's no longer a glorious palace. Now it is simply a, a lean-to that is built. The glory has long gone. The house of David is now a shack. It's dilapidated. Unstable, broken. Now understand in these words, he's talking about more than just the state of the, the political kingdom of David. He's talking about the people. The people that David ruled over. That's his house. That's the booth. Remember, James said that's fulfilled in people coming to God. So in other words, the people of God, as he is speaking, are not what they used to be. They're a booth. Where there was pride, there is now pity. Where there was arrogance, there's now timidity. Where there was might, there is now weakness. The sword of God has done its work well. But now by God's grace, he puts down the sword and picks up a trowel to begin rebuilding. That's what God does. On August the 6th of 1945, the Enola Gay dropped the atomic bomb named Little Boy over the city of Hiroshima. The devastation was almost unimaginable. 2.4 million square miles had to be cleared. 2.4 million square miles. It took years. The work was great. But today Hiroshima is a city of 1.1 million people. Rebuilt, but not rebuilt in the same way. At the center of town, at ground zero, where the bomb was detonated, they have built a 30-acre peace garden as a memory of what happened, saying, may it never happen again. Now, the question I pose to you, if humans will put time, effort, and money to rebuild a destroyed city, do we think that God will do any less when His people have been decimated by their sin? Do we think God will do any less to the church that he has purchased when we struggle and we are no longer standing as we ought to stand? God will not abandon his work. And God's work is completed by, in, and through Jesus Christ. Everything that sin has destroyed is rebuilt by Jesus. I want you to think of the scope of what sin does. Did you know sin has corrupted this creation? Creation fell. You have never seen a completely beautiful sunset because it is marred by sin. Sin was the way that, that sickness came into this world. We know sickness because of sin. Death comes into the world because of sin. Death is here. We grieve at gravesides because of sin. Lives are destroyed because of sin. The reality is that whatever problem you are facing right now, can be traced back to a sinful attitude or action in your life or someone else's life. Jesus rebuilds all that. 
And that's what the gospels work to show us. Mark chapters 4 and 5 give a, a condensed picture of how God rebuilds in Jesus. At the end of Mark 4, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. He's resting well, but they're not because the storm is raging. Sin-corrupted nature is exploring, exploiting its wrath against this little boat as it's going back and forth. And Jesus steps up, and what does he say? Quiet! And the waves are quiet, and the storm is quiet, and the disciples are quiet. Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. That is our God showing he rebuilds corrupted nature from the fall. He gets into the town. He's on his way to Jairus' house when a woman who has been struck with sickness. Twelve years she's had a hemorrhage. She's met her deductible. Now she's paying out of pocket until she doesn't have any more pocket to pay out of. And in faith she just reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And guess what happens? She's healed. The hemorrhage is gone. Her strength returns. Jesus rebuilds what sickness brought about by sin has destroyed. Death seems like a pretty big enemy, doesn't it? Until he gets to Jairus' house where his daughter is dead. And then Jesus goes in and he speaks those words that have become the heart cry of my family. Talitha kumai, little girl get up. And death that has been brought about by sin in this world leaves the room. And she steps up in life because God, through Jesus, rebuilds what sin and death destroys. What about life? You may say, Pastor, that sounds good and that's great preaching. But what about my life that has been destroyed by sin? There's a man Jesus met in Mark 5. He is a man that becomes the embodiment, the picture of what happens when sin has its full sway. Because this man is possessed by demons. He's living among tombs. He's cutting himself. Nobody has anything to do with him. That is the destruction and isolation that sin brings about until he meets Jesus. And Jesus addresses him. Who are you? My name is Legion, for we are many. Well, many, you got to go. And many says to Jesus, please have mercy upon us. And Jesus is so gracious, so kind that he shows mercy to demons and says you can go into the pigs but pigs got more sense to hang around with demons so they run off a cliff and into the ocean and that man it says in the next phrases was found fully clothed and in his right mind what sin destroys in our lives Jesus rebuilds to the power of the Holy Spirit so whether it is sickness whether it is death whether it is nature whether it is our lives they are rebuilt in Jesus Christ he is our hope he is our hope. He restores what sin destroys. That's why he says this booth of David is repaired. It is repaired. And not only is it repaired, but there is this beautiful picture of reconciliation. Notice in verse 12 what he says. That the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord that they may possess it. You know how they possess the enemies? The enemies become friends. This is not about military conquest. Best way to destroy your enemy to love him and let him become your brother in Christ. That's exactly what he's talking about. That's what James was talking about in Acts. 
The enemies become brothers. Paul puts it very eloquently in Ephesians chapter 2. Upon the screen he says, Jesus, he himself, Jesus is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In other words, where the law said Jews and Gentiles say separate, when Jesus died, that veil was torn in two. And he says, now God's making one people dedicated to him, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That is the beauty of reconciliation. In 1913, the federal government sponsored what had to be an amazingly solemn yet joyous event. In 1913, a reunion was held in Gettysburg to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the battle that took place there. Soldiers from both sides showed up. They swapped stories, reminisced. Things were pretty peaceful, except they did say at one dinner, we don't know who started it, but someone was attacked with a fork, but all was well. It worked out, nobody harmed. The climax of the gathering was this reenactment that took place there upon Cemetery Ridge. They reenacted Pickett's Charge. Soldiers that had survived that on both sides were there. The Union entrenched, the Confederates making their way up. They said it was so quiet until at one moment one of the rebels that was there let out that blood-curling call known as a rebel yell. They said grown men behind the Union lines, eyes opened up and tears began to flow. And then the Union soldiers, no longer carrying weapons but canes, came across the barriers and they met and they embraced who was once their enemy that's the gospel truth that we are reconciled with God we are reconciled with one another in him I am convinced that the fissures that divide our nation can only be healed by the gospel not just the gospel believed but the gospel lived out if we want to end racial strife in America preach and live the gospel Preach and live it. Be the example that says we are one body in Christ. It is God who brings that about. And on that day, he will rebuild, restore, and show the full reconciliation that is brought about in Jesus Christ. And on that day, the blessings will be abundant. Verses 13 through 15 describe this. It's a picture that's beautiful. The plowman overtakes the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. You know what he's saying? The harvest is so bountiful that as it's being harvested, they can't get it up before it's time to replant again. That's how beautiful things are. Look at the language. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, or since we're Baptists, drip grape juice. It's this picture of bounty and blessing and joy and fullness that has been brought about by God. Where there was famine, it's now feasting. The drought has given way to rain. The insecurity has become secure. And it's more than can be imagined. This is brought about in Jesus and will be fully brought about at his second coming when he brings in the new heaven and the new earth. The guarantee is in Christ. We see glimpses of it at his first coming. 
The fulfillment of this is about much more, much more than just a strip of land 150 miles long by 50 miles wide. This is about the people of God enjoying and possessing the new heaven and the new earth. It is a place of complete security because of the price that was paid to purchase it. I have found that when you invest a lot of money in something, you take care of it. You do. You try to watch over it. The more you spend on something, the more valuable it is to you, the more you want to be sure that it lasts. John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says these words. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. My Father's mansion, my Father's place has many rooms. Now, I confess to you for years, I misinterpreted that. I took that to mean that when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he was talking about when he ascended, he was up there working away on heaven. Jesus the carpenter building a house, looking at the apostles saying, bring me another two by four. No, that's not what that's about. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place, think about where the very next day he was going. He was talking about the cross. He said, when I go up Golgotha, I'm preparing a place for you. When I die, I'm preparing a place for you. When I am resurrected, I have prepared a place for you. It is finished, he said. Done. The place is prepared. He is talking about that glorious place purchased by his blood. That when the nails were driven in, it was the nails of the place God has prepared for us. Being completed so that where he is, we may be also. It's a glorious place, a place of abundant joy and love and peace. And it's a place you and I need to think of more often. Now, I know what people say. Christians start thinking about heaven, they become no earthly good. You start thinking about that heaven stuff and that new heaven and, and hills overflowing with, with abundance and sweet wine. Oh, you'll be no good. I want to submit to you just the contrary of that is true. C.S. Lewis summed it up well in his book, Mere Christianity. You'll see this up on the screen. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. We need to be more heavenly minded. We need to think of the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to ask you to do three things as a result of this passage. First is this. Think on these promises and live in humility. The work that is described here is God's work. From beginning to end, in that booth... God says, I will raise up, I will repair, I will raise up. And if there was any doubt, look at the very end of verse 12. Declares the Lord, who does this? David's house, his people, they're a booth, they're powerless. They can't accomplish this. God honors humility. A humility that relies upon Him. A humility that is open to Him. A humility that says, I need help, O oh Lord, provide it. And that humility creates praise and worship. There is no room for arrogance when we think of the promises of God. Because we know it is all His work. Live with a humility. 
we may need to repent of pride and thinking we've got it all figured out. We can do these things. The promises of God tell us we can do nothing. It's a Him. Second thing I would encourage you to is this. Live in holiness. These promises do not call us to passivity. 1 John chapter 3 records these words. Beloved, we are God's children now. Okay, we have been saved now. That's our status. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're God's children, but we're not home yet. We don't know the fullness of that yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Rather than becoming passive, this pushes us to pursue being holy. To focus our eyes upon Jesus and to say, He is our Redeemer and our Savior. He is the one who has made these promises. Let me live for Him in holiness. Recently read of a pastor who put this into very, very strong words with an image. An image that he witnessed at the changing of the guard in Arlington Cemetery at the tomb of the unknown soldier. I've seen that twice in my life and it's a very moving experience. The precision of that color guard. The reverence that is on display there where they tell you in the crowd when the guard has been, do not move, do not say a word. It is truly a very reverent moment. This pastor watched as the color guard was changed but then something unique happened. The commanding officer snapped to attention and with a very loud authoritative voice told the people watching, please remain where you are without moving. Sergeant Jennings is completing his 27-month tour of duty here and today is his last day. At that moment, guards came and they walked officer, Sergeant Jennings' family up next to him. Sergeant Jennings was then given four roses which he placed in front of the tomb to honor the dead. And then with dignity and precision, he returned to stand looking eye to eye with his commanding officer and he saluted. And then an amazing thing happened. Sergeant Jennings began taking off the white gloves that he wore every day when he was on duty. The commanding officer held out his hands and the sergeant took the gloves and placed them in the hands of that officer. Then he stepped back and the officer holding those gloves came up and saluted him. Imagine that day when you will stand before God, your duty done. Will the Lord look at you on that day and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Will he say you have fought the good fight? You see, the promises of God should push us to pursue that. It should push us to live holy and live in hope. To live with hope. Problems of today can seem insurmountable. And sometimes we get tired. The other night we were praying around Emma. And it was on Friday night after we had gotten the diagnosis of her pneumonia. We were emotionally shook. Jody was praying and I was listening to her and she said something. She said, Lord, I know you tell us that you are with us in the valley of the shadow of death, but I am tired of walking in it. You tired of that? 
Are you tired? Don't give up hope. You ever wonder, is it worth it to profess his name? Is it worth it to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Sunday school teacher, do you ever wonder, is it worth it to keep preparing your lesson week after week and showing up week after week? Do you ever wonder, is it worth serving? I find it amazing that at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul has talked about the glory of the resurrected body and what awaits us, he ends the chapter by saying this, Therefore, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. The glories of heaven, the glories of a resurrected body, therefore keep working. Therefore keep following. Therefore keep sowing the seed. Therefore keep being obedient. Therefore keep being holy. Therefore keep living in hope because your labor is not in vain. We should be a people marked by humility, holiness, and hope because we stand upon the promises of God. And He never fails. Are you standing there today? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. Nathan's going to join me in the front. Are you standing there today? Christian, are you weary and are you ready to give up? I would ask you, hear the words of the Lord. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is not in vain. Are you wondering, is there hope? Quite frankly, we suffer the consequences of our own sin. And you may be wondering right now, Lord, is there hope for me? The pit I've dug is too deep. I want you to understand that the scripture says there is no hole so deep that God cannot reach you. No hole so deep he cannot pull you out of. Yes, he does it in his own time and in his own way. But our God is faithful. Do not despair. This morning as we stand and in just a moment we begin to sing. Be still my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief. Or pain. If you need to come and kneel at this altar, feel free to do that. If you need someone to pray with you, Nathan and I are here. If you want another believer, maybe there's a believer you are close with and you just need to go to them and say, Would you pray with me? I feel like giving up. Know that the Lord is on your side. Believer, He has purchased you, you belong to Him. Oh, Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. You know where we fool ourselves. You know where we are lying to ourselves. Lord, let your word and your spirit cut through those deceits like a knife. Father, you wound to heal. You break that you might mend. And Lord, we are a broken people. We are the booth of David. Let us gaze upon your promises, Father pray this morning that where there is despair there will be hope I pray that where there is a sense of weariness there will be strength and I pray this through Jesus Christ who is the yes to the promises of God in his name I pray amen let's stand together if you need to respond come as we sing